I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater, where we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps we'll get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. We're kicking off our September theme, The Fun, A Pulpy Mess, and that's our selection of some interesting films that are labeled, justly or otherwise, as being knockoffs of the great cult classic, Pulp Fiction. This week, we screen the rumination on loyalty and principles, covering 1995's cult classic, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Join us! You know, there are some films that when you look at them on paper, they seem like they should check all of the boxes for being massively successful. They have a great germ of an idea, an excellent cast, a competent director, and what's more, a studio that has vetted a decent script. And in spite of all of these things come together, they just for some reason don't seem to gel and properly work. So, in spite of everything assembled, you're left with something that has these flashes of greatness on several fronts, but end product misses the mark and doesn't quite achieve the goals. This week's film for me is just that, a very intriguing notion, with a great cast, some snappy dialogue, and yet what we are left with is a problematic end product. I saw this film as a sophomore in college, a copy that I had secured from the media center at the library, and I ran home with great excitement when my shift ended on a rainy Thursday night in my dorm room to screen it. To say I didn't like the film when I first viewed it was an understatement. I was angry at the film's flow. I was incensed by how you could have so many amazing people on the screen and waste them on a plot like this. And I'll say, in my callow youth, I was personally offended by the ending that the film offered up to me. My roommate, who was a fellow movie buff, and I had started to argue and tick off all of the things that were wrong and didn't work with the movie. And oddly enough, it was one of my dorm neighbors, who had watched it with us, who spoke up after a while and was rather rational about it all. He just basically said, yeah, you're right, it could have been better. But I still liked it. It would take me another five years and a rewatching on a rainy Saturday afternoon to have this film win me over again. And while I'll still admit it has numerous problems, I also have to admit in taking a step back, when I think back on it, my dorm neighbor was right. Yeah, this film could have been better in some ways, 
but I liked it. In hindsight, it's rather hard not to. The story's compelling. Ex-gangsters being brought back into the life, and then the situation that they're hired to take care of goes horribly wrong. So wrong that all of the men involved are to be killed as retribution, except for the man who got them the gig. It is up to him to wrestle with the morality of his actions and to attempt to help and atone for the situation that he finds himself responsible for. How can one not find that to be a compelling story? But I guess we need to start from the start. Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead was born from the mind of screenwriter Scott Rosenberg. Born April 24, 1963 in the suburbs of Boston, Rosenberg had wanted to write movies from the onset. He had received his bachelor's degree from Boston University in 1985, and then he came out west to study filmmaking and secured a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA, setting himself up to be a young, hungry writer during the time of the seismic shift of 1990s Hollywood. You could say what you want about Rosenberg, but he wrote, Indeed, hey, you ever hear of a little film called Con Air? Hmm? How about Kangaroo Jack? Uh, he's got other ones than that, but I'm just saying, the man cranked out projects. And hey, what's more, he did what good writers do. They just keep writing. According to Rosenberg, he ended up writing 14 scripts before he ever got around to writing Things to Do in Denver, noting that if he had an idea, no matter how silly or uncommercial that idea was, he would just sit down and write it, get it all out on paper. And because of this, he is often joked about his fabled, never-made werewolf biker film, disappointingly being never produced during this time, and also a lot of other stuff he would rather not think about. Now, when it came to the draft of the script that would become Denver, he ended up knocking out that first draft of the story in a week. It, it was hard not to. You see, it was inspired by Rosenberg's own relationship with his father. The concept of a walking dead man, a man who knows he is on borrowed time, was all taken from his father's tragic battle with cancer. As Rosenberg stated in a 2006 article, when he was coming up with the main character of Jimmy the Saint, this guy is incredibly decent. He's become part of the local lore. He's spoken about in heroic terms. And that's how I talked about my father. There are guys out there, they're so successful, they make so much money, and yet they're miserable pricks. There's not a tear shed at their funerals. My movie is going to be about the value of a man. Good words. To tell his story about a man who knows he's on borrowed time, Rosenberg created a unique language and subculture for the guys who are criminals in this story, who are contracted out by the mob to, quote, take care of things. And he did this by creating a pastiche of biker slang mixed with Vietnam War slang for his characters. We'll, we'll get to more on that later. The script and the final film also serve to be a commentary on his musical taste. You see, the title of the film comes from the then brand new Warren Zevon song, which, on at least my humble opinion, comes off of one of Zevon's best albums for the decade, 1991's Mr. Bad Example. That is a killer album. Please go do yourself a favor. Give it a spin. 
He also ended up lifting the name of his character. Jimmy the Saint comes from the Bruce Springsteen song Lost in the Flood, which is off of the now iconic 1973 album Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Rosenberg managed to win a local screenwriting contest, which I should clarify, it seems that the contest was held through UCLA when he was a student, but I haven't been able to source that yet. So bear in mind, he won a contest and that prize was actually being put in touch with an agent to help sell whatever it was you had written. Said agent ended up getting a copy of Denver's spec script, and he started circulating it through early 90s Hollywood, getting it passed around to some very important people. As Rosenberg himself described it back in 2010, it was a hot script for the moment. Although nobody wanted to film it, everybody was reading it. In short order, doors would begin to open for Rosenberg. Disney had him on their radar, and then famed film producer Joel Silver began to reach out to the young man and ask him, hey, you got any more ideas? Silver put him on retainer, and Rosenberg was then selling ideas on the regular to Silver, most of which would never actually get filmed, but it didn't matter. He had, proverbially, made it. He's getting paid for his writing, and people are talking about him. So let's quickly shift here. Spring 1994. Pulp Fiction hits, and it's massive. Miramax is about to start an unprecedented run of being a studio that pumps out hits consistently and wins Oscars for it over the course of the next decade. They buy low, they sell high, they promote independent projects, they get writer-director scripts, and then it allows them to pick and choose whatever they feel. Suddenly, that hot script that's been floating around, it looks like it could be the next big thing. A film they can pack with a bunch of actors who are willing to work small for the potential gravitas and career boost, and what's more, it's in a genre that is hot at the moment. It's a crime film that has black comedic elements. It's a no-brainer. They greenlight it. Director Gary Fletter is tapped to direct. He's a fellow Bostonian alum and a classmate of Rosenberg's. He had gotten his start in television, and he had a hit with the episode Forever Ambergris from Tales from the Crypt Season 5 in 1993. It's a good one. It's got Roger Daltrey. Yes, that Roger Daltrey from The Who. Steve Buscemi and Paul Dooley. It's a particularly gruesome one, but kind of fun. Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead would be his first full-length feature film. As they began the task of casting, Andy Garcia actually had read the script already and reached out, wanting to play the lead of Jimmy the Saint Tosnia. And from there, a who's who of character actors were brought on board, with the final crew being comprised of William Forsyth, Bill Nunn, Christopher Lloyd, and Treat Williams. Steve Buscemi, who had worked previously with Fletter, was selected to play the ruthlessly efficient hitman, Mr. Shush. Christopher Walken, making our second Pulp Fiction cast member to carry over, not counting Buscemi, ends up playing the villain, a ruthless quadriplegic crime boss who is only ever referred to as being the man with the plan. 
Feruza Balk and Gabrielle Anwar were cast as the women in Jimmy's life, one who he looks out for and one who he falls madly in love with. And then the great Jack Warden is here to tie it all together, playing the character of Joe Heff. He's the loudmouth at the end of the bar swapping stories with anyone who has the time of day to listen to him, which kind of makes him the narrator of this tale and allows our story to unfold as if we have our own malt shop Greek chorus to draw on. In addition, there's a ton of background character actors that are familiar faces who either have gone on to become famous or are just ones we've already known. Marshall Bell, you'd know him of Total Recall and Starship Troopers fame. Bill Cobbs from Demolition Man. Don Stark from that 70s show. And Jenny McCarthy of Singled Out fame and the very current anti-vax nutcase. Thomas Tiny Lister Jr., you've seen him in Friday and The Fifth Element. And, what's more, a very, very, very young and early role for Don Cheadle, who I believe may have been involved in an Oscar-worthy film or three, and oh, perhaps he has a Marvel movie or two under his belt. With a budget of $8 million, shooting began on location in the Mile High City of Denver on August 24th, 1994. Filming would continue through the end of September. Miramax even secured the rights through Zevon to utilize his song for the film, under the condition that they of course would only use it on the credits, but honestly, in the context of how this film is, it is the only logical place I would argue one could put it, but it's a really nice touch. Hey, you've been really good listening to me rattle on through all of this, so why don't we just cut to the chase, I'll shut up, and we'll get to that trailer. Jimmy the Saint. Jimmy the Saint was a good man. You're different, Jimmy. You got decency. Who left behind a bad world. You glide. I glide? You glide. It's a very attractive quality. You're a thing to be amazed by. Then one day, the old boss forced him back. Why me? I got a call in the note. What do you want done? It's just an action. It's not a piece of work. Look at this. All the pig brothers from back in the day. One shot deal. We're in, we're out. Are you in? Absolutely. Yeah. You're still crazy, man. Well, I am what I am. It would be smooth. Bill, you're going to be with Jimmy in the moving van. Bring the kid there, we scare him, and that's it. It would be easy. How's it looking, big man? Looking good. It would be the biggest mistake. Can I see some ID, please? He ever made. Don't you need ID? Please
ex-New York gangster and transplant Jimmy the Saint Tosnia, as played by Garcia, is a happy man, although his business in Denver is struggling. He runs an afterlife advice service, and hey, that's a hard stretch even for when this was made in the mid-90s. For people who are dying and would like to record slick, meaningful messages to their loved ones, you can come to Jimmy and he will allow that to happen in his specialty studio. But wouldn't you know it, there's not a ton of people making use of said business. It's alright though. As malt shop jockey Joe Heff, as played by Jack Warden, would tell it, Jimmy the Saint, he used to be the bitch's bastard, but now he's become a caring, upstanding citizen. Indeed, he's a fixture in his community. He tries to look out for others. He gives money to a local teen prostitute named Lucinda, as played by Feruza Balk, not to turn tricks. And he checks in on her, making sure she's safe, making sure she's eaten. All of this changes, though, when Jimmy finds himself summoned before his old boss, an enigmatic mobster who's known only as the man with the plan, as played by Christopher Walken. He, too, used to work with Jimmy back in the old days, before an attempt on his life left him both a widower and a quadriplegic. And now, now he just spends his days angry and causing others to suffer. The man with the plan informs Jimmy that he has bought up the note on his failing business, and he will both forgive the 50000 that Jimmy owes, and he'll even pay Jimmy an additional 50000 on top of it, as long as he takes care of something for him. Bernard, my son, he's all that's left of my Cynthia, and he's crazy as a shithouse rat. The other day, they catch him in the elementary school playground, grabbing itty-bitty titty. It was a mess. And the thing is, I understand the problem. Bernard's problem... <laughs> you remember Meg? Yeah. Meg was... Bernard's high school sweetheart, you know. I kept it up through college. We thought this going to hitched. She met this beat, Bruce, studying to be an orthodontist. She busted up at Bernard, moved to L.A. with this beat, Bruce. Bernard's never been the same. I understand part of this was inevitable. Being the son of me, he likes initiative. Since this Meg thing, his behavior has become worse. Meg it so he'd sooner fuck the friar later than propose the Meg. 
Now, from the man with the plan's point of view, if his pedophile son Bernard, is played by Michael Nicolisi, can just get back together with his nice ex-girlfriend, the world is going to suddenly return to, quote, normal. You know, like it was before he ended up in his chair, before his wife had died. It is made clear, though, the boyfriend is to be scared only. Eh, maybe roughed up a bit, but he's going to be alive and well when he leaves town. That is it. Jimmy finds himself over a barrel, but in his true giving fashion, he decides to offer members of his old crew from back in the day a chance to get something out of this, and he entices them by offering them each a ten grand cut just to scare off some spoiled college kid. Each of his friends are also out of the life as well, and they've all been working and or struggling to work regular nine-to-five jobs. This includes ex-biker, Big Bear Franchise, or just Franchise, as played by William Forsyth. He's happily married with a bunch of kids, and he's currently managing a trailer park. There's Earl Easy Win Denton, as played by Bill Nunn, who back in the day was a tough killer, but now he's just a jovial man who works as a pest exterminator. Olden Pieces, Polymeros, as played by Christopher Lloyd, a gentleman ex-gangster who is suffering from leprosy and now spends his days working as a projectionist in a porn theater where he doesn't have to interact with folks. Last, Critical Bill Doolittle, as played by Treat Williams, an ex-enforcer type who's prone to violence and has massive problems controlling his raging temper. Bill currently works as a mortuary attendant, where he takes out his frustrations by beating up on corpses before funerals. All of them start to prepare for the task at hand. And of course, it's during this lead-up that Jimmy meets a beautiful woman named Dagny, is played by Gabrielle Anwar, who he feels instantly connected to, and he tries to and does successfully woo. Dagny, that's your name? Tremendous name. My name is Jimmy, and I just have one simple impulsive question. Are you in love? What? At the present time, are you in love? Why? Because if you are, then I won't waste your time. I'm really not the type of man to impede another man's happiness. However, if you're not presently in love, then I will continue my rhapsody, because if I may say so, Dagny, you are most definitely the bee's knees. <laughs> Does this rap ever work? Alas, in the old days. Uh, now I rarely get a chance to try it, but you haven't answered my question. I got it. Are you in love? Well, there is someone. But? We date. I have memorized his phone number, but I won't use his toothbrush. We're somewhere in between. And he's crazy about me. As he should be. You glide. I glide? You glide. It's a very attractive quality. Most girls, they merely plod along. You, on the other hand, you glide. Tell me about it. What's his name? Chip? Alex. Same thing. Does he make you thump? Define thump. Thump. When you think about him, you can't eat, you can't sleep. When he smiles, you forget about man's inhumanity to man. Does he do that That's for you? a ridiculous concept. No one can do that. Girls who glide need guys who make them thump. Girls who glide need guys who make have them thump. Have dinner with me. Aren't we the Sultan of Segway? It's a beautiful month. Just have dinner with me. Are you going to make me thump? Or die trying. Dinner. 
this dinner. I'm going to regret this. Only for luck. It honestly seems like Jimmy has the world by the tail right now. He completes this task, he helps his friends, he gets his business out of Hawk, and he's started to steadily see a woman who he feels he can spend the rest of his life with. Foreshadowing much? The plan should be simple. Bernard's ex-girlfriend Meg, as played by Sarah Trigger, has been seeing this young med student named Bruce, as played by Josh Charles, and while staking out a stretch of highway that they know the young man drives routinely, they're going to stop him. Jimmy and Franchise will observe from an overwatch position, while Easy Wind will observe from the street. And Pieces and Critical Bill will pose as cops, with the end goal being to yank him out of the car, remove him from the scenario, and take him to a secured location to, quote, scare him into breaking up with Meg and leaving town. The plan is executed in the pouring rain. And, of course, it doesn't go as planned. Bill is confrontational and Bruce is not cooperative, noting that he wants to see their IDs, voicing suspicions that they're awfully far away from their jurisdiction, as the highway is under state police authority, and what's more, Denver Metro cops are issued rain gear for such weather. Things end up getting out of hand rather quickly. As Pieces raises the flashlight and Bruce sees his hands, he begins to mock the two of them, which sends critical Bill into beast mode. License and registration. What was they doing wrong? License and registration. You want to step from the vehicle, son? What? Just step from the vehicle. Can I see some ID, please? Oh, son. Look, I know my rights, okay? I've heard about guys impersonating cops, shaking people down, that kind of thing. I'm from L.A., okay? I know about that thing. I know my rights. Let me see some ID. That's, uh, that's not the way we do things here. Well, I don't like the way your uniforms fit. You want to take that base out of your bush right now, boy? I got this under control here. Son. We need some cooperation. You know, maybe I'm just a complete asshole, but doesn't the highway fall under the jurisdiction of the state police? It does, doesn't it? Well, what are a couple of Denver City Police Department guys doing way out here? It's early yet. What a bad feeling, Jimmy. How's it looking, big man? Having a little chat. Looking good. Hey, what's your badge number? <laughs> Come on, fellas. Just, just be easy. Because it seems to me on a night like this, and again, it's really just one guy talking, but you guys would have department-issued raincoats, you know, plastic hat guards, that kind of thing. What's the matter? You couldn't steal those? We're cops. You're cops. Listen, kid. Whoa, 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 whoa. God, time out, bro. What is up with your fingers, man? Carpentry accident. What's that got to do with that? Carpentry accident? <laughs> okay. So tell me, Officer Leper, how are things done? You want to see some ID? I'll give you some fucking ID! Please! Stop it, Billy! Stop it, Billy! I ain't a cop, am I? Kids out of the van. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it. I'll make a fucking move, Billy! Goddamn rat, I will! Come on, Billy! 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 Come on, Billy!
pieces painstakingly attempts to calm Bill down and to stop beating on the youth. And he eventually does. But when Bruce mocks them again, Bill kills Bruce with a knife to his throat. Pieces is terrified, and the crew is in complete disarray, when suddenly the back van door pops open. It's Meg. She had been asleep inside the van during this whole altercation, and she's now getting out to see what's going on. Startled by the opening door, Pieces fires blindly into the darkness, and to his horror he realizes he has killed her. Jimmy is forced to go to the man with the plan and explain what has happened and tries to make things right. It doesn't go well. You're going to beg? Get down on your knees and your suit. Beg. Drop! You ask me back in. Taking you out. So that's it. You're going to send these two and they're going to... Stab me in a crowded Italian restaurant. Carry me in my sleep. Never. Not these two, not that way. We go back in you. You learned the operation of modicum of class in the days. That's why. The look of human kindness I'm giving you. And now, you got 48 hours. Put in the wind. Leave Denver. Go to Rome. Visit the Vatican. Pray to the God you abandoned back in Brooklyn. Just put it in a fucking wind, Jim. Or else, I gotta do you too. What about the others? Buckwheats. Wasn't their fault. They were following my orders. I take full responsibility. You're not a human being, you're a waltz. Fuck this, Jim. For your miserable band of misfits. Fuck, fuck beats. The mob boss is vindictive and enraged, explaining to Jimmy that he trusted him to take care of this. So for his own form of punishment, he's going to let Jimmy live, giving him notice that he has 48 hours both to leave Denver, and he lets him suffer in knowing that his friends have all been sentenced to buckwheats. Oh, that's right. This is more of that slang. Hey, Joe, what does that exactly mean? Buckwheats is a whole other animal. Guy orders a buckwheat shit, it just don't mean take the guy out. It means take the guy out in the most painful way possible. It means the Vic should suffer. Typical buckwheat hit is to shoot a guy up the ass. Yeah, bubbing. Slug up the edge, you don't die so much as contort for a good 15 minutes. Then you die. I imagine it's like crapping white hot razor blades. You know? The man with the plan has hired Mr. Shush, as played by Steve Buscemi, the best hitman west of the Mississippi to wipe them out. Jimmy desperately spends the next two days trying everything he can to make things right. He secures money, new identities, safe passage for members of the crew, knowing it will all most likely cost him his own life. To his great frustration and sadness, Pieces outright refuses, both because he takes responsibility and 
because he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life running. He's had a good run. He's danced the dance. Have you? <laughs> Hold it. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> see that? <laughs> you see Critical Bill around? I can't find the man anywhere. Um, I haven't seen him. Listen, I have something for you. What's going on? Charter flight leaves in the morning. You got a layover in Rome. Ah, get out of here. Greek islands. You'll be having Moussaka Mikros by dinner tomorrow night. I, I don't think so, Jimmy. Hey, hold no more porn theaters, no more scumbags stroking it around you. The cool blue waters of the Mediterranean. Ah, what? I ain't gonna run. What are you talking about, Holden? I've been thinking. Holden, listen to me. I've been thinking about this guy, my neighbor next door a few years ago, a citizen, never married, no kids, just a sweet guy, and he got a cancer, a bad one, he was dying, I've been thinking about him, thinking how if in his last days when he was laying on the bed, staring up at the ceiling and this shitty little apartment, knowing he was going to die. Was he sorry he never did nothing? Was he sorry he never did the foxtrot and $2,000 a night hooker <laughs> in a Paris nightclub? Jimmy, we did the things. Well, then I appreciate what you're saying. Listen, I need you on this island, man. Jimmy, Jimmy, um, I need you there. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't have any regrets. I'm not gonna stare up at the ceiling. Maybe I could have been a better old man to my kids. Maybe I shouldn't have pulled as much time as I did. But shit, Jimmy, <laughs> we did the things. Them days. Fox travel with a $2,000 a night hook and a Paris nightclub. What do you think, Jimmy? Hold it. Oh, drinks. Oh, drinks, Jimmy. Easy Wind does take Jimmy up on his help, and he goes under the protection of a local gangster named Baby Sinister, as played by Glenn Plummer, until they can spirit him out of Denver. Critical Bill announces that he isn't going anywhere, and he intends to stay right here and fight this shush fellow. He also turns the blame around on a very frustrated Jimmy, telling him, Hey man, you knew I was crazy when you hired me. 
It's only with Franchise that Jimmy actually returns back to the man with the plan, where he pleads with the Bob boss to let his friend live, citing that Franchise has a family and children, and he was not involved with anything that happened on the ground for these events. The man with the plan begrudgingly agrees to spare Franchise. Mr. Shush ends up finding pieces working at his projection job. The men tacitly acknowledge each other, and then Pieces sits calmly and turns back to the screen, waiting for it to happen. To his credit, Mr. Shush kills him quickly with a single shot to the head. Easy Wind is found by Mr. Shush after he shoots his way into Baby Sinister's clubhouse and kills most of the men there. He is later shown dying painfully, gut shot. Critical Bill does manage to get the drop on Mr. Shush when the assassin enters his apartment, shooting the man point-blank with a shotgun and uttering one of the better lines of this film. Unfortunately for Critical Bill, that second small pop is heard, and he looks down to find that Mr. Shush has shot him with a small Derringer pistol. The two men die in a heap together. Jimmy is horrified to hear about the deaths of his friends, but he officially breaks down when he learns that Franchise and his entire family have been killed on the man with the plan's orders. He returns to the mob boss's home, where he threatens him with vengeance, leading the gangster to tell him that now there's a contract out on Jimmy, and intimating that he will possibly kill Dagny to boot. Jimmy, looks terrible. You gave me your word on franchise. All right, gave him my word. You was. Jimmy, don't you see? I'm a criminal. My word don't mean dick. You gave me your word. Your word! Your word you gave me the other day! You gave me your word. I met someone. I met a girl. I'm asking you. I don't want her hurt. I know she's lovely. Maybe we'll get her in here. Dance for the boys. Jimmy spends the last day of his life trying to get things in order. He apologizes to Dagny. He buys a ring for her and he gives it to her old boyfriend, demanding that the confused gentleman love and take care of her. He beats up a man who has harmed Lucinda, and he gives her all of his money. And in a noble but a nonetheless rather unsettling gesture, he sleeps with her to give her the thing she's always wanted, a child of her own. He then records a special message to his unborn baby, explaining who he was, how he tried to live his life, and how he tries to do right by those he cared about and respected. Then, once he secured Lucinda out of town via bus, he drives back to his old haunts where he finds Bernard. Knowing that he can't directly harm the man with the plan, Jimmy tricks Bernard into getting into the car with him, where he knifes the man, taking the only thing left that the mob boss had in the world, 
and cosmically avenging all of the friends he has lost over Bernard's selfish behavior. Fully accepting his fate, Jimmy waits in his car along with Bernard's body as a trio of killers arrives to seal his end. Jimmy makes zero effort to flee as they pump round after round into him. Joe Heff then picks up the narration, yet again holding court in the malt shop, recounting the actions of the noble Jimmy the Saint to any and all who will listen, while the man with the plan is shown being miserable and suffering in silence alone. And over this narration, in a happy alternate afterlife, Jimmy and the crew are all enjoying themselves on a yacht, together, happy, healthy, laughing, and consuming their beloved boat drinks. The credits roll. Zevon roars. Wow. So where do we even begin? Well, how about this? Let's talk about what doesn't work first. Look, Rosenberg is not exactly a favorite writer of mine. Don't get me wrong. His impulses and his dialogue are often stellar. And I will say this to anyone who can hear the sound of my voice. He's a better writer than I ever could hope to be. But his method is what gives him such great characters. It's also exactly what hobbles him. You see, Rosenberg can crank greatness out so fast with these characters because that's what he focuses on. The plot is always secondary to him. It's a great technique that has served him well when he's hired to do things like action films. Again, let's use Con Air as an example. You have great character work, but yeah, uh, it's a prison on a plane. Are we good? All right, well, well, we'll get to the fights. The action serves to bridge those fantastic characters and get them from point A to point B. But when you're not making an action film, when you're making a drama, you're left with these great character studies and some really fantastic dialogue, but there's nothing that helps them get from point A to point B. So this film has a tendency to meander, and it makes the movie feel, well, kind of lost. This film has a solid first 20 minutes, and it has a solid end 10 minutes. But the 85 minutes in between, that's where the mess happens. Okay, let's talk about the dialogue. Again, simultaneously, a source of great strength and a great weakness for the film as well. The banter. Hey, it's a masterclass. It's been written and rewritten and polished up like a new dime. If this was a stage play where the dialogue was filling in for all the things we can't see, it would transport us into a different headspace and, you know, a time, a place, a feeling. This could be something that I would say Mamet would be proud of if you threw it up there and made people walk the boards and say it. But this is a film. And while it doesn't toss around profanity in the same way in a wanton fashion that Mamet would, you know, you get great lines. Women who glide, men who make them thump, it's sexy, it's fantastic, it's great banter. But dear God, all of the inventive slang. If he had stuck with one or two phrases, I could have gotten really on board with this. And it would have been cool. But basically, you are wasting the talent of Jack Warden to basically act as a way to fill in the audience on the context of all the hipness. 
And that makes it neither hip nor cool, it's just annoying. The man is acting as a glossary, trying to explain buckwheats and boat drinks and give it a name, palm greetings and give it to the wind, cool stuff that's supposed to be there to help support a story and flesh out the characters now has the opposite effect. It just drags it down. Boat drinks. That's a common toast in prison. An ideal. Yeah, at the end of a long bad life, there you are. On a big cabin cruiser somewhere in the Florida Keys. Having boat drinks. Now, all of that being said, from a character study standpoint, again, this film is profoundly good. Jimmy himself, fantastic character, and once more having the man with the plan as his foil works wonderfully here. He's caring to a fault, so much so that the man with the plan mocks him for protecting his friends and Dagny, and just the simple effort to do the right thing. He willingly resigns himself to the honorable action, even when it means it will cause his own death just to protect those few people who are still alive by the end of our tale. He feels everything. He feels responsible. And that is something that the man with the plan cannot. He cannot understand why one would do these things for others. He cannot seemingly comprehend that you can't force people to love you, nor respect you. You could only make them fear you. You could hurt them, but that only goes so far. The crew's bond and these friendships, both in this life and in the next one, all stands in stark contrast to the man with the plan's profound loneliness and rage, and thus it makes him the perfect foil. Now, there is a slight bit of problem, at least for me, with the characterization. Jimmy, great character, but he's played by Garcia, and Garcia is a fantastic actor, but I would argue he's a little too young still at this point to have the kind of past that everyone's talking about. You know, the good old days? Garcia would have been about 38 when he started filming this, and honestly, to me, in reading it, this character would have made more sense if it was a man who was pushing his late 40s or early 50s, especially when commenting on all these wild times he had back in the day. That said, Garcia, again, amazing actor here. So if I was making a film and he had suddenly told me, hey, I want to be in it, I would have said sure too. The other part, the awkward, touchy, weird part, the character of Lucinda. The relationship between them is, albeit a bizarre one, but it's chaste and it's paternal, at least in the sense that one's father figure is cool with the daughter being a streetwalker. Although, again, to point out, he discourages her and he keeps giving her money for food and clothes and often tells her she needs to get an education. Now, Bulk was 21 when she filmed this, but at least back in the day, she was so slight of frame, so fresh-faced. If one was to tell somebody that she is a young girl of 15, I don't think anybody would have argued with you. And therein lies what makes this an awkward, uncomfortable area. Since her age is never given, and it's clear she's trying to play a more teenage role, Jimmy's granting of her last request in sleeping with her to give her a child takes on a rather uncomfortable twist here. At least if you've been perceiving her to be underage in this film, as I do. Now, for the record, 
aside from my complaint about the slaying itself. The actual use of Jack Warden as sort of this Greek chorus is not a bad plot device in theory. He's great because he's Jack Warden. And hey, if there was a malt shop in my neighborhood where I could find that old man holding court every afternoon between 4 and 6, you can bet your ass I would be down there 5 days a week. If they could have just tightened it up a little, given him more of a plot to tell instead of having him pop in and pop out to act as a filler of holes. Then we would get to the end of our second act and we would realize that the man he's been telling all this information to, the man Joe Heff has been lecturing, when we see it's none other than Mr. Shush getting a background on all of our characters, it would actually be far more impactful than it currently plays in the film. Now, as a meditation on mortality, this film is actually a great film to show how people deal with the end. Particularly, Christopher Lloyd is so poignant and so beautiful in his portrayal of pieces. A man who knows his fate is coming, and he accepts and makes peace both with his past and with the ramifications of his life and what it's going to bring to him. He knows he's going to die, and instead, he tries to make Jimmy feel better about it bravely meeting it with dignity and grace, something that we again see Jimmy himself do at the end of the film. Easy Wind runs, but he doesn't get far, and he doesn't really make much of an effort in his own survival. Not to say he doesn't wish to live, it's more of the way Nun portrays him. He's so frightened by what is coming, and he's so convinced the mobsters around him can protect him, that he just finds himself out of time at the end. His final inaction leads him to having that slow, painful end he was attempting to flee. Critical Bill's desire to fight to the last moment is in its own way noble, and in this picture, humorous, but his arrogance and his inability to grasp that even if he survived the initial encounter with Mr. Shush, more killers were going to be coming for him. So, how was this film received? Well, when the film played at Cannes in May of 1995, it was reviewed alongside some other interesting films from the same year. Robert Rodriguez's Desperado, Gus Van Sant's To Die For, Larry Clark's Kids. And you know, it was actually warmly regarded. Writing for Box Office in the Cannes Film Review section, Leo Lowenstein gave the film five stars, praising both the script and its performance. Variety was there covering it, noting that it was the first feature here to cover some familiar ground in a very fresh and breezy way. And although their review did talk of the other Tarantino clones that were popping up, it was quick to point out this one distinguishes itself from the others by virtue of having highly principled, noble heroes and a philosophical man who is devoted to doing the right thing for others and trying to make the world a better place. So knowing all of that, one would think good things were to come. When Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead opened on December 1st of 1995 to a wide release, it was hammered, hamstrung, a hatchet job, taken out back to the woodshed and administered the harshest of correctives. 
critics who had initially voiced support at the film festival were suddenly doing about faces and picking it apart while simultaneously comparing it to Pulp Fiction. Roger Ebert started off his review by essentially saying, I changed my mind, and he awarded it a very snarky 2.5 stars, although he himself compares it both to Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, and then, in a sentence that blows my mind, he acknowledges that director Fletter pointed out to him that this film was written before Pulp Fiction was. And yet he soldiers on with his comparison anyway, citing, well, it springs from the same impulse. Why not just write, yeah, but still? It would be less disingenuous. Growing up, I gotta say the local critic and a man who I would still like to deck if I ever met in person, Jeffrey Westhoff, dismissively gave it a one-star review and mocked the writing. Desson Howe of the Washington Post argued, things to do, stay away. Janet Maslin of the New York Times mocked it with all its throwback dialogue to a hipper time. Michael Wilmington of the Chicago Tribune opined that not even the talented cast can resurrect this film. Clearly, the worm had turned, and it was suddenly en vogue for the day to attack anything that reminded critics of Tarantino, instead of taking in the film and giving it, you know, actual criticism on its own merit. The tragedy of all of this, the viewers listened. Although it initially was scheduled for a wide release, it ended up having a scaled-back limited release. Things to do in Denver when you're dead ended up only earning a little less than $530,000 at the box office against its $8 million cost to make. It was a certified bomb and was mocked as such. Yet, as things would have it, upon its release to video, Denver garnered a cult following over the years and developed some staunch supporters. People, like myself, who would first point out the amazing acting and writing, they're already here. But they will own the film's problems and they will take it in as part of the whole. If you go to Rotten Tomatoes, at least as of this recording, the film currently sits rather low with a 33% fresh rating from critics, but a 72% fresh rating from the audience. Personally, I think if you give this film another 20 years or so, it's going to be used in highlight reels for a lot of the actors involved, and I think it's going to start to get better attention. It's a film that tried hard, it stumbled a bit, but it was noble in its effort. In spite of all this, I will tell you, this is an entertaining and interesting exercise, and one I would gladly recommend that folks should absolutely experience. The version of Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead screened here at the LSCE was the 2012 Miramax Classics DVD release, and it comes rather simple. It has a few trailers and some small promotional production featurettes attached to it. Still, it is the most up-to-date release, and its quantities are limited at the time. New copies generally retail on Amazon for $23.99, and while I would argue it is well worth your hard-earned money, 
to me, this is a film that needs to be grabbed up by some other company who can properly appreciate it. Give it a little TLC, get some bonus content benefiting a cult film of its character, and put it out on a nice cleaned up Blu-ray. Now, let's say you're not interested in any of that. May I again reiterate to you how absolutely badass Warren Zevon's Mr. Bad Example album is? As an audio CD, it has unfortunately gone out of print, but you can still find it as a downloadable MP3 album, or you can go to Spotify and listen to it in its entirety. I say do it. It is well worth your time. Now, remember folks, we here at the LSCE don't get anything telling you where to purchase films or any other item from. We just think it's important these days to continue to support physical media so that the artists and rights holders who continue to keep releasing this great content that we all know and love, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's what this is all about to us. Isn't it to you? Don't you want to get more of what you love? Besides, this film is fun. It is interesting, the dialogue crackles, and the character work is amazing. Couldn't you use more of seeing that? So what are you waiting for? Get out there, get yourself a copy of Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll tune in again. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or, hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We're featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow, and a review if you could, please. And, hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of. Give us a boost in the old rankings. More reviews and the increased likes will affect how those marvelous algorithms are, and they make us more searchable. And thus, we can share more of these films with other people. And that's what you want, right? Don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal or wish to contribute a segment into the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy, and remember... Life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.